We are on the seventh message in a series we're, we're doing called Revelation Revealed. We're going through the whole book of Revelation, hopefully verse by verse. We're going to take our time. Today we're going through Revelation chapter uh, 3, verses 7 through 13. This is Jesus talking to the apostle John, and John writing a letter down, and they're going to send it off to a church. Jesus is writing a letter personally to this church, and last night was an hour and 50 minutes service. Thank you. But we understand you guys are here at nine for a reason, okay? And so we're, I, cut, I cut a lot out, a lot, a lot out. And so we're just going to read through these. Uh, I cut a lot of the review out. We're going to read through Revelation 3, 7 through 13. And to the angel, this is Jesus Christ, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, that is the pastor, all right? These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, no man shutteth, and shutteth, no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door. No man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I'll make them come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. They will know. Your enemies will know. I love you because thou hast kept the word of my patience. I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. There's going to be an hour where the whole world deals with a tribulation is another word for that word. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which come down out of heaven from my God. I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Once we get going... In this series, we're going to try to do a chapter a week. It won't always work out that way. In chapters 4 and 5, after this chapter, it talks about the throne of God, the seven-sealed book. Chapters 6 through 19 of Revelation are covering the seven-year tribulation. These seven letters that Jesus Christ dictated to the apostle John, John wrote them down, are the most important part of the whole book of Revelation. And I see two different commentaries differing on the actual meaning of Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Greek scholar Rick Renner says the, the word Philadelphia in the Greek means brotherly love. And we're not talking about the one in Pennsylvania. Another real respected commentator says that's not entirely accurate. Breaking down the word Philadelphia, it means the friendly city. Philadelphia was given the name Philadelphia by King Umanias II. He was the king of Pergamos. One of these letters was written to the church in Pergamos. We went over that. This king had a younger brother that was supposed to be his successor. These two guys liked each other so much 
They were just known as the brothers. They kind of ruled together. You can find coins with both of these brothers on the same coin, one on each side. So Umenius II built the city of Philadelphia, what we're talking today, named it in commemoration for his brother that he loved so much. Philadelphia was 30 miles southeast of Sardis. That's the church we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It was situated at the gateway to the central plateau of what is now Turkey. The city was the center of a great vineyard district. The city thrived on on the wine business, Um, growing grapes, vineyards, making and selling high-quality wines. Today, that area still is a big, big, big area for vineyards. Still a wine-growing country, but back then when this letter was written in approximately 96 AD, Philadelphia being a wine-growing city with all kinds of vineyards, the main god that the people of of Philadelphia worshipped was Dionysus. Diana, Dionysus. Dionysus was considered the god of wine or the god of partying or revelry. As I said, it was a gateway to the high central plateau of Asia Minor. The Romans set the city of Philadelphia up to be a door or a gate to the east, to the Middle East. Philadelphia was one of the greatest, it was sitting on one of the greatest trade routes in the world. It linked Europe in the Middle East. And Philadelphia was the open door in which all commerce had to pass through to get to the east. It had to go through that city of Philadelphia. The Romans wanted the people of Philadelphia to take the Roman culture and civilization into the Middle East because they were so well situated. The church of Philadelphia had taken on a missionary role. The church of Philadelphia, it had missions opportunities because of its location that other churches in the Roman province of Asia didn't have. The area of Philadelphia was located, was highly volcanic region. The city of Philadelphia suffered again and again from earthquakes. In 17 AD, Philadelphia was completely destroyed by one of these earthquakes, and the tremors from this earthquake were actually reported for years after. The Roman government taxed the citizens of Philadelphia so heavily in order to rebuild the city. They taxed them so bad that you could say it took the population of Philadelphia from upper middle class to the time this letter was being written. Most of them were in poverty. They had reoccurring earthquakes occur 20 years after that one in 17 AD. So the pagans and the Christians alike in Philadelphia suffered huge economic and civic disruption for 20 to 30 years. Revelation 3, 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, we talked about this, that, that word angel, 14 times in Revelation is referring to a man, a messenger, a human messenger. Most, most commentators believe this is written to the pastor. That angel is the pastor. These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. And really this verse is all about the title that Jesus gives himself. Each one of these letters, he gives himself a different title. And it always connects 
with the subject of the letter. He calls himself, he that is holy, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, shutteth, no man openeth. The word key is used as a symbol of authority in the Bible. By giving a person a key, you give him the right or the authority to open and shut whatever the key was designed to unlock. This phrase, the key of David, comes from Isaiah 22, 22. 22, 22, and 23. The key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open and none shut. He shall shut and none open. I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. As we can see, reading Isaiah 22, the key of David is granting passage for Jesus into the king's chamber. This is speaking prophetically of Jesus having this key outright. And you could really say, verse 23 is talking about Jesus' rule being in an eternal context. It's saying he's like a nail being fastened into a place where he can't be moved. He cannot be moved. Isaiah 22, 22 is talking about Jesus actually has possession of a key. So Jesus is the one with all the keys. And I mean, we just read Jesus in Revelation 3, 7. He has the key of David. Revelation 9, 19, the key to the bottomless pit. Revelation 1, 18, the keys to hell and death. Luke eleven fifty two. Woe unto you lawyers, that's Pharisees, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in, ye hindered. He's telling the Pharisees that they were hindering people from getting knowledge, is what he's telling them there. And he calls it the key of knowledge. Matthew 16, 19, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom, of heaven, whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You have Jesus actually giving us the keys of the kingdom. And it's talking about our authority, binding and loosing. You have a key. Did you even know you have a key? To bind and loose? It should be done every day. It's not, it's not an afterthought the authority that we are supposed to carry. But anyway, you look at it, Jesus has all the keys. And it's only through Jesus you're gonna pass from one spiritual room to another spiritual room. You know, speaking of the key of David, it was David that the Lord narrowed everything down. And he said it would be through the house of David that God the Father said the Redeemer King would come. I realize, I realize as our Savior taking him, taking Jesus into our hearts. He is to be the king of our hearts and lives. But on another level, on a government and a social level, there's gonna be a time when he's gonna be king over the complete and total earth and everyone in it. Whether they like it or not, you know, not everybody's gonna like it. Which all begins with the coming kingdom age. I mean, he came down the first time as a lowly Nazarene. They laughed at him. They beat him. They spit on him. They beat him up real bad, put him on a cross, nailed him to a cross. They humiliated him, and they crucified him. And now the next time he comes, the way he comes back is really going to be indescribable. 
It's going to defy description. It's going to be with unbelievable power. Matthew 24, 30. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Everyone will see it. We don't know if that's through iPhones. We don't know how that's going to work. And it is at that time he will reign over the entirety of the earth. And how will that time be? We're talking about the millennium, which we will get to hopefully sooner than in a few months. You know, just talking about the phrase, he opens, no man shuts, shuts, no man opens. Really, it's saying it's Jesus who sets your course. Because he's the one who paid the price for our redemption. It gives us the direction here that it's Jesus Christ that's driving things. It seems, if you're looking at the church today, the body of Christ as a whole, it seems like we, we get into talking about doors. You could use the word gate. It seems that the church a lot of times is responsible from, from keeping people out of open doors. Sometimes even tries to open doors that should not be open. Some denominations, the leadership, in my opinion, seems to take the place of Christ. I believe the greater meaning of the, of, of the phrase talking about Jesus Christ opening shutting doors is really referring to our redemption. If we could put that, that picture of Jesus up, thought I'd give you a different one this week. Jesus paid the price. He opened the door for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the biggest door ever. And all that he requires, I'm talking about Jesus Christ, is to believe, is to believe that. Is to believe that he died and then rose again. It's all. And, and, and that's a door that no man can shut. We're talking about Jesus Christ, Christ crucified. And yes, the resurrection brought the power, but you get no resurrection unless there's a death. In a sense, the cross is the open door, and no man can shut that door. If we put that picture back up, anything other than that, anything other than that is not the gospel. Anything other than, than that is presenting a door. Christ himself has shut. No man can open that door if he shut the door. Revelation 3.8, I know thy works. Here he's, that word in the Greek, we've talked about this. He is evaluating these churches so closely. It, in, in the Greek, it, you can't describe in the English what it's saying in the Greek. Everything, the greeters, the ushers, the praise and worship, the small groups program, every member, everything, everything they do, every move they make. It's like an investigation I have set before thee an open door. No man can shut that door. For thou hast little strength, hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. That means they had a chance to deny his name. Here we have Jesus telling them, I've opened a door for you. No man can shut the door. What Jesus is telling them, this church, is I'm giving you a passage into a new place. Another level, another realm. 
And you can see this kind of stuff all over the New Testament. We're talking about doors. We're talking about gates. Last, last, I think it was a Saturday night, we talked about gates or watching in Sardis. Sardis, they weren't watching. There's so much to watching. There's so much goes into paying attention. Today is doors. We're kind of running with the doors. 1 Corinthians 6, 16, 9. A wide door of opportunity for effectual service has been opened to me. Listen to what he says about a door. And they're a great promising one. It's a great promising door, but there are many adversaries. See, a lot of times you think, oh, there's, oh, there's too much pushback. That must not be God. Not true. Not true. Picture a big, thick door with locks. I'm just going to qu- quote Rick Renner ver- verbatim. This is out of his companion study guide. It's a little book called Christ's Message to Philadelphia. Each one of these letters he wrote a little book on, 50 to 100 pages. You could do like four sermons on each one of these letters. If you want to know the Greek language, this is the guy you want to interpret it. And what he says on this word door, it's, it's the Greek word thura. That phrase, I have set before thee an open door, no man can shut it. It's describing a large, solid door. These doors were usually locked with a heavy bolt that slid through rings attached to the door and the frame. And when these doors were open, Rick Renner says it provided access that was, not, that was normally restricted and hence denotes opportunity or passage into a new place then no one else is gone. He says, when Jesus says, I'm going to set before you an open door, he's saying, I'm removing the locks, I'm removing the barricades, I'm throwing it open, and you're going to have passage into a new place. It's what Jesus calls an open door. There are numerous places where a door describes really what it is, is a God-given opportunity. 2 Corinthians 2.12, when I arrived at at Troas to preach the good news, the gospel of Christ, the door of opportunity was opened. Think about it. That usually happens through people, either letting him or not letting him, God using someone. I think about that. James Tan was a door for me. 2003, I was at Rama Bible Training Center in, in Singapore. His wife said, would you like to go to lunch with my husband? I had never met James Tan. And I'm not really social like that. Like, I don't just go out with anybody. You know, you go out with anybody, somebody you don't know, it's, it's a lot of work. I don't mean to sound stuck up, but you have to listen. You have to ask questions. You have to care. So we go to Singapore. You can't eat all you want to eat. I mean, you can't eat like how I usually eat when I go out to eat. I thought James Tan dressed weird. But he was a door. It was in Singapore that we met. And I just think about what if I wouldn't have done that? I didn't even seek God about that. I didn't even look into my heart and say, what, what do you think, Lord? I think I, I complain. Are you serious? 
okay. Then he asked me a second time. And I just think about this. Jamestown was a door in so many ways. I mean, that was 19 years ago. It's a, it's a friendship that has gone through so much. And I may not be preaching. I started preaching over there. I preached 50 sermons over there before I ever preached a sermon in, in Living Word. But the main thing was, he took me to this, this, this island called Batam. Um, and from there, Living Word, you know, you walked through a door, you, you provided a door, because you, you planted, you could call it four, you could call it five. You, you planted a, churches and you built pastors, residences. This is around 2010. Think about this. Let, let's look at that. Here's the second church. Can we put that picture up? This is the second church you planted. That was in one of the most, they, th- this, this particular village had a, had a Muslim school. Where, where that trained little kids um, for the jihad. The women were completely covered. Uh, it was a very hostile village. His pastor went, his family went through so much. This was the second church you planted. The first church you planted, let's take a, take a look at that. That, that. This was actually the third church you planted after that, that other one. But he, here's the thing. This is in a lawless village. If we could just take a look at the next picture there. That's a church. It was packed out. And you think about the lives that were changed in this lawless village. It's definitely the nicest building in this village. So you see the next picture. See that little church right next to the big church? That was their children's church. Well, that church was the very first church you planted. It only cost $2,000 to plant that church. And then they grew out of that church, so you planted them. This is all you. You planted them the next church, right? And they turned that first church into their children's church. And the pastors, actually, you built a, uh, a residence for them in the back of that church where they could live there. And then, then we decided, let's, let's, let's do a really nice one. And so if we could do the next one. That, that church there is called Shekinah. Shekinah. This church, this is 2019 was the last time I was there. So we built a really nice church in the middle of this village just to see what happened. You, you, you gave the money. Okay? And if you can see, let's look at the next shot here. You see down the side of this building... That, that was the pastor who I was with. It's a woman pastor. Hard place to be a woman pastor. Tell you what, let's look, look, look at this thing on the inside. Let's, let's check this out. Next picture. It's from the balcony. You built a balcony. And see all those little kids? This woman, see, we, the, the goal as you plant a church is, is not to, so they can eventually support themselves, right? Because they'll always be looking to you and not Jesus. Those are all little kids at a Christian school. After she built that big church, it gave her the clout to start a Christian school. Now she has a Christian school of 150 kids in the middle of the biggest Muslim country in the world. And they're looking, nice uniforms. She did this. She's a visionary. 
And let's look at the next picture. I think you can see, this was the last time we were there, but you can see, you see Sam down there in his red hat teaching these kids? Our, our children's ministry guy? And this was 2019 before COVID, the last time we were there. And, and so, but you think about this, you think about those little kids coming out of poverty-stricken homes and the doors that are open for them because I just accidentally went to lunch with James Tan. Think about that. I come back, I start bringing teams over there, and then we say, hey, let's do this, right? And you think about the doors that were open, the doors that have opened in how many lives, because one person who didn't even consult God, and how many doors did that James Tan meeting open for me? So many. So many. That's just, and think about this, think about, we're talking about doors. You know what opened this door? My mom's twin, who is in heaven, my mom has a twin, had a twin. Her name was Lucy McKee. For two years, she prayed before I ever even met James Tan. And you know what was in her tongue language 70 to 80 times a day? The word batam, batam. She prayed out this whole situation for two years before I'd even decided to go to Asia. Doors. Tongues, prayer, open my door. That opened that door. Then I had to step through that door. Then you had to step through your door. And it opened so many other doors. I just think about in my life, right, how relationship. Up, uh, Brandon Lyles, that, that first picture you saw of that church, the second church, the, the, the first He's the, the pastor out at Northwest. He was an administrative assistant for the youth pastor. And we did this fifth service thing together. And now, where's Brandon Lyles? He's a, he's, he's a pastor. He's a gifted pastor. Think about that door. We, in a sense, Brandon Lyles and I were doors for each other. Just think about all the doors that I've probably missed and not even known it. It's caused me just studying for this sermon to look back and say, where are those doors, Lord? Only you can shut them. Have I missed open doors? The devil will try to get you to step out of those rooms that even if you step in through that door, step out of that room behind the door that Jesus opened for you and you spend time in the room, but over time, you find through things we've talked about in these letters, compromising, persecution, fear of people, you become offended, you step right out of that door. I remember in 1998, I was the athletic director down at, at uh, Maranatha, coaching girls basketball. I had a record of 88 and 112. 88 wins, 112 losses. Struggling. And I was hiring a boys coach. It was the fifth interview of the day. A man named Jeff Wall walked through the door. He sat down. He's about 10 years older than me. And I was like, this guy knows what he's talking about. And I just think about that. Because it, it wasn't just for our boys program, a door for our boys program. It was a door for me. I learned from him for two to three years. 
I wouldn't have won two state championships. Jeff Wall was a door to two state championships for Maranatha. That man was a door. That interview was a door. That interview was a door. That very interview. That person. I can tell you, if I wouldn't have had that relationship with that person, I would not have learned what I learned. Colossians 4.3, at the same time, pray for us that God may open a door. So the door wasn't open, and Paul's telling them, pray that he opens it. So he knew that door had to open. So you can know the door should open, and sometimes you have to pray to get it open. Why am I standing on my toes? I do not know. Revelation 4.1, after this I looked, this is, this is uh, next week, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. First voice which I had heard addressing me like the calling of a war trumpet said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place in the future. So we got John and looking and seeing a door. Are you looking for doors? Until I read this letter, until I started going through this letter a couple of weeks ago, I wasn't looking for doors. I was just doing my thing. I wasn't even thinking about doors. And when you talk about a door in the spirit, it could be a gate also in the spirit. It's not always a door. You could be a gate yourself in the spirit. A person can be a gate, a big gate that moves a lot of people from one spiritual plane to another. I'll tell you this, and I'm not saying this is the church to end all churches, but I sincerely believe you are called to a church. People get offended because the devil wants them to step out of that room that they gained entrance through the door that Jesus opened to them and haphazardly hopped to the next church. I'm just going to be honest with you, and I, I could tick off 10 different families over the years that have left this church. Some, some people leave the church, they shouldn't be here. I'm not saying everyone that leaves the church is off. I'm certainly not saying that. What I'm saying is being offended for multiple reasons, and I'm just being straight with you. And I, I thought to myself each time, gee, what a coincidence. Within one to two years of this particular family leaving, they're wallowing in tragedy. I'm saying, I'm not saying the living word is the answer. I'm saying if you're called to a church and you know Mac Hammond is your pastor, you probably want to seek God before you walk out from under that spiritual covering. If you could see the covering, all right, people are covered by the church they're called to. It's a much bigger deal in the spirit than people think. To walk out that door and try to kick down a door to another church, another realm that you're not supposed to be. Next time you're tempted to try and kick in a door or pick a lock or bang on it until someone opens, remember it's Jesus that opens it. We need to pray for this and to recognize the doors. To recognize doors. Like we saw in Revelation 1, you, you, you got to be looking for the doors. Ephesians 1.16. I pray for this for you every day. This is Paul praying for the church at Ephesus. How does he pray for that church? I do not cease to give thanks for you. 
and making mention of you in my prayers. That means he did it every day. He did this prayer over and over and over, and he said, Lord, I pray for the church at Ephesus, and it covered them. Okay? What's this, prayer, what's this talking about? Verse 17. What's he, what's he praying for? I know I'm always stuck on these epistle scripture or prayers, and I put them into every sermon. I always pray to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. What's he praying? He would grant you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Wisdom and revelation. Things would be revealed to you. That what would be revealed to you? How are you going to get into those doors? Ephesians 1.18, what kind of doors? By having the eyes of your hearts flooded with light. So you can know and understand the hope, to, the moves you're supposed to make. And about your inheritance, this is what I pray for you. What, yesterday? This prayer? Five times? Ephesians 1.19. What? What's this a door to? So you can know and understand what is the immeasurable, unlimited, and surpassing greatness of its power. We're talking about a door to power. And that you recognize what that door is. Maybe it's a scripture. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's a rhema word. I started listening to the Bible different when I looked at these doors, when the scripture kind of touched me, right? Oh, I'm going to go look at that now, right? It can come through scripture. It can come through tongues. It can come through worship. Just another way to look at these doors in the spirit. There are doors that Christ could be trying to point you to and through using the Holy Spirit. Doors to get you out of things. There's doors to get you out of situations. We're talking about in the spirit. How do we know this? Acts 5.19, but the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and, and brought them forth. Why were they in prison? They were being persecuted for the gospel. How'd they get out of prison? Prayer. They, they got put in prison. The whole church, this is the one, they went back and they got in their own company and the church prayed and opened that door for them to get out. Acts 12.10, when they were past the first and the second ward, they came into the iron gate that leadeth under the city, which opened to them of his own accord. They went out and passed on through one street, forthwith the angel departed from him. Again, we have Peter being released from prison. Think about all the doors that were in that prison. Obviously, it was God's will for Peter to be released from the prison that he was put in, even though he was being persecuted. These are biblical examples to me that just say, because you're being persecuted does not necessarily mean it's God's will for you to be for you not to be supernaturally released from a prison. And it starts by walking through a prison door. Acts 16, 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open. Everyone's bands were loosed. Their door became everybody's door. Why were they in prison? 
They cast the spirit of divination out of a soothsayer who was possessed of the devil. So they were being persecuted for moving in the gifts of the spirit. And we have God stepping in and causing an earthquake to open the prison doors. He's like, no, you're not putting them in prison. You're not putting them in prison. I think the bottom line here, I just look back how many doors I've tried to force my way into. And seeing that in hindsight, almost trying to make God open them. And I look at the doors that I've left open and have not walked through, or you could say just not walked through, but maybe completely walked by and missed. Yesterday, I was, I was thinking about this all week. You know, I was walking. I have a 21-week-old golden retriever. His name's Rolo, not after the candy, the Viking. <laughs> and I was just thinking about the doors. You have to remember sometimes that in the spirit, when you're positioned to walk through a door that's been opened, many times there's going to be opposition to confuse you. This, just, just because there's opposition, opposition does not mean the door's closed. Speaking of opposition, Revelation 3, 9. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them come and worship before your feet to know that I have loved thee. The common view in most commentaries, um, um, it, it, I, and I know for a fact that most commentaries, because the commentators I'm looking at, there's like seven of them, all say this is a common view is it's, it's, it's really, it leads into the next letter. This is, has to do with legalism. This is an allusion to legalists. Those trying to pull us out of the gospel, put us back under the old covenant, which is the law, and in doing so, they deny the complete and total sacrifice of Jesus, that it's all free, that it costs nothing. Legalism is what the book of Galatians is talking about. I bet I've done 40 or 50 sermons involving 20 to 30 scriptures each sermon that come out of the book of Galatians. On the subject of legalism, in essence, legalism turns into saved through works, only getting through things through God, not because he loved you, but it be, turns into a program. Oh, I must not have gotten that because I didn't do that. And you just live like that. And the relationship goes away. And there's another point of view here about this verse that we just read. It seems to be talking about people who are false Jews, who claim to be Jews, but they're not. We're talking about reconstructionists. Who knows what a reconstructionist is? Non-denominational churches, it's growing. Most denominational churches, and it's growing to non-denominational churches, a good number of them are teaching a view of the Bible because Israel rejected Jesus. The promises that Israel were supposed to receive or supposed to inherit now fall upon the church. These churches, and there are many of them, and this message is growing like wildfire, believe that the church has replaced Israel. It's also called replacement theology. They believe that Israel is no longer God's people because of the rejection of Jesus Christ. This replacement theology is taught in most seminaries, taught in most denominational churches, and as I said, it's spreading. 
It's even word of faith. Churches. This view of replacement theology in most cases is accompanied with the view that Jesus doesn't really come back and rule the earth. They do not believe in the millennium. And this replacement theology is the theology that laid the foundation of the Holocaust that killed six million Jews. The official number is 12 million. This is the very theology embraced by Hitler and the Nazis that you can trace the Holocaust back to. It started with their, well, they're replaced. They killed him. They killed the Messiah. It's a deception that I guarantee you there's a satanic prince presiding over that theology. And the Holocaust in Europe, at least partially, has to be laid at the feet or the blame that has to be laid at the feet of the silent pulpits around the world, especially in the States, but in the 30s and 40s. Just let it happen. Even today, anti-Semitism is growing, becoming very prominent. Many churches, because of this weak, errant, replacement theology. There are thousands of churches that do not see Israel as a part of God's plan for redemption. And that is the view of one very well-known scholar, another simpler view. I've seen a third view. It's telling us in verse 8 that the Jews in Philadelphia were attacking that church. They were slandering the church, and they were trying to completely destroy the church in Philadelphia. In the phrase in verse 9, who will make them come and worship before thy feet is basically saying those people are going to come back and they're going to repent to your face if you guys just stay on track. Verse 10, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, and I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Interesting. Interesting scripture. I'm running short on time, but I'll just let you know this is referring to the Great Tribulation, where it's also called, as we talked about in the book of Daniel, Daniel's 70th week. What this is saying in verse 10, I'll keep thee from the hour of the temptation, is how it should read. It doesn't read that way, but there is something in front of the word temptation in the Greek language. It's called a definite article. And in the Greek language, and the guys I'm looking at, we're saying that this word means either a trial or a tribulation. In other words, they're saying, what Jesus is saying here is this is scripture that's saying, I'm going to take you out of the tribulation before it starts. You will not experience the great tribulation, Tribula- i.e. tribulation, because you have been patient, been on guard. That means watching. And I've been watching. And this church at Philadelphia, which is a missionary church, and really it continues until this hour, and this is including everyone who is alive that knows Jesus Christ, he will keep us from the hour of the tribulation, which shall come upon all the world. What else could there be that comes upon all the world at one time? And this is just one more of the seven other scriptures that are really giving us the idea that the rapture of the church is going to take place before the tribulation. There is no place for a rapture during 
the great tribulation, or somebody's going to have to show me and show a bunch of the commentators that I'm studying after. And as we go into these later chapters in Revelation, we're going to find out the beginning in Revelation chapter 4, the next chapter, the church is never mentioned. Why would that not be mentioned? The church, hint, hint, is not mentioned as being on the earth in Revelation chapter 4 on. Revelation chapter 6 through 19, which cover all seven years of the great tribulation, not a word is mentioned about the church. Gee, I wonder why. Because we're not here, duh. Let me just say, if, if, if this church was on the earth for any part of the seven-year tribulation, don't you think God would have given us some instruction? In the 13 chapters of Revelation that cover the tribulation, it's not mentioned because we're not here. We're not here because we're in heaven. Because we're in heaven because we were raptured. Verse 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast, which thou hast, that no man can take thy crown. The phrase here, no man can take your crown. Greek word stephanos describes a victor's crown. We look at the crown of thorns placed on Jesus' head. We put that pick back up. Ugh. This was meant to mock Jesus. We know that the Roman soldiers put this on him. It was mocking a royal crown. And just a reminder here. Remember now, this crown of thorns was placed on his head before the victory was complete. The victory of the cross was such a sure thing. And in the end, you're going to see this victory for you and me because we trust in that blood that he shed. Because he was the God-appointed substitution of atonement for your, your sin and my sin. A substitute. Verse 12, he that overcometh, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go out no more. I will write upon him the name of God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. I will write upon him my new name. Using Rick Renner's rendition, again, out of the companion study guide titled Christ's Message to Philadelphia on this verse, it says in the Greek broken down, him that is in the process of overcoming is what that should, be, should say. It's interesting that the Greek means him that is in the process of overcoming, I'm going to make him a pillar. In other words, it's referring to not just the victories you've had in the past, but in saying that overcoming is a process. I.e., Mac Hammond, don't quit and you will win. Rick Renner is saying Jesus wants an overcoming lifestyle, which is telling us there will always be something to overcome. Always. Verse 13, last verse. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Just want to pick a word out here. Hear. Let him hear what the Spirit is saying. Is telling us in the Greek, hear it to the tiniest, smallest, minute detail. Hear these words. Don't miss one nuance of this scripture, of these scriptures is what that's saying. And so, last Saturday night, mom covered for me, which was a blessing. And she had a decree. 
Let me just read, read this. Because God says that it's time for retribution. It's time for full recovery. Even for Minneapolis, the Spirit of the Lord says. I'm going to cause even generations of evil that have been perpetrated against this city. I'm going to cause generations of things that the enemy has tried to work against you for evil. You're going to begin an experience, a boomerang effect. You're going to experience boomerangs in your churches. You're going to experience boomerangs in your business communities. You're going to experience it in your schools. And the Lord says, I'm going right to the very heart of racism and anti-Semitism. The Lord says, I'm breaking the spirit of robbery that has been against this city. The Lord says, you will experience turnaround. You will experience a reversed curse. You will experience the fullness of revival in this town. George Washington Carver, uh, he, he prophesied that the end time revival would be here and go down the Mississippi in Minneapolis, right? The peanut farmer, right? Remember him? He's a preacher too, right? That was his prophecy. And so I'm just saying this is really in this city. I have claimed it for my kingdom, says the Lord. You will experience the fullness of a revival in this town. I'm going to name the names of these spirits. And after I say it, you say, stop. Okay? Simple. All right? Haman represents a spirit of robbery the, out of the book Esther. He, he was a native Magite. Magites are the Amalekites. Didn't we talk about them? Amalekites represent a spirit of robbery. So we decree against the spirit of religion in Minneapolis and St. Paul and Minnesota. We say, stop. Against the spirit of Antichrist, we say, stop. All this is in the name of Jesus. Against the spirit of witchcraft and the occult, we say stop. Against the spirit of a perversion, we say stop. Against the divisive political spirit, we say stop. Against racism, we say stop. Against false justice and injustice, we say stop. Against the spirit of slumber, apathy, and complacency, we say stop. Against the spirit of babble, result of unrighteous unity, a mob mentality, and cancer culture, we say stop. Against the spirit of accusation, we say stop. Against the spirit of fear and intimidation, we say stop over the suburbs of Minneapolis, St. Paul, and all of Minnesota. And we declare over this city and over the United States of America, we move into the season of judgment against God's enemies. And all 10 of Haman's sons will be hung in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's take communion on that one. So let's roll those carts up here just... Use them like a, like a skateboard. So I just, uh, there's, a lot of pick, there's a lot of takes on communion, okay? I suggest you study the scriptures. Okay, you're going to have, you're gonna have a lot of old school takes on, a lot of old school, a lot of, lot of, lot of ministers that don't want to change. They're teaching the same things that have been taught about communion since the 1950s. I'm just telling you what's in the Bible here, Right? Health and wholeness through Holy Communion out of Joseph Prince, okay? God is not telling you to judge yourself during communion. You can believe that and you can do that, all right? But do so at your own, the risk of your own health, all right? This is the only reason he was telling them to judge themselves in, in Corinthians. 
1 Corinthians 11, 20 through, 20 through 22. Therefore, Corinthians, you guys can start passing that out, okay? When you come together in one place, it, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry, another is drunk. They're getting drunk during communion. He gave them a tongue lashing here. Because when they came to the Lord's table, those who were hungry rushed for their turn. Others guzzled the wine. This is in context. So Paul was not saying, judge yourselves because of all the things you've done wrong. He was saying, judge the act, the way you're taking communion. Because you're taking communion improperly. That's why he was telling them to judge themselves. Read the whole thing in context, all right? So he wasn't saying to, to us to partake. He was telling us to partake in the correct manner, which is to recognize the Lord's body was broken so that yours can be made whole. Don't take the Lord's Supper because you're hungry. Don't take communion because you're guilty, right? Um, if you're hungry, eat at home first. He was correcting them. And that's why you get that one scripture in there that says, judge yourselves. He's explaining why to judge themselves. They weren't taking it correctly. So what Paul told the Corinthians to do was discern the power of the Lord's broken body. He was teaching us that when we fail to discern the body of Christ, we should not partake because we're not claiming by faith what Jesus has done for us. By failing to do so, you're making his work on the cross ineffective. Powerless. When you fail to discern his body, his broken body, you're actually despising his work on the cross. It has nothing to do with judging yourself. I promise you. He's telling you right here, why, he's telling them why they needed to judge themselves. They were getting drunk on the wine. And so that word unworthily in, in, the, in the vines, treating communion as a common meal. Just a, yeah, it's time for communion. Let's take communion. It's the last thing he does. Thank God we're out of here. No, as an uncommon meal, know what it is. Discern his body. Discern what he did with you, for you. If you don't, you shouldn't take it, is what it's saying. Okay? So let's do this. Let's take it. Thank you, Lord. Can we put that picture of Jesus up? Is this, you think he's, I just love this because it's showing his eyes here. It shows the pain. He had to feel every bit of that pain. It just shows the, the heartbreak. You know, he died of a broken heart. How do they know that? Because when they put the spear in him and water and blood came out. So he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, take, eat. This is my body. It was broken for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And receive it, Lord. We receive your healing. Receive it in ankles, hips, spinal cords, skin issues, hardened arteries, blocked arteries, 
heart plaque, plaque in the heart. Receiving blood clots. You bore our cancer. You bore our strokes. You bore our, all arthritis in the name of Jesus Christ. He took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant. Cut my blood. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. Past, present, and future, Lord. Thank you that you were judged so we don't have to be judged. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much for coming.